0: Remembering this verse in Nehemiah chapter eight, it's a little phrase that says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. And so I started saying that to myself, I started reminding myself, every time I would get discouraged about my job, I have to go to this job, I have to do it. It's adulting, right? Because everybody needs to live indoors and eat food. Uh, and so I have to do this thing. And I just remember saying this phrase and the craziest thing happened. You want to guess? It worked. The joy of the Lord was my strength. Now, I know having a bad job uh, or a job that's discouraging seems overwhelming at the time, but let's be real. Compared to some of the other things that people face in life, it's actually not that big of a deal. Um, But guess what? It can work even in that situation too. And uh, my hope today is that by the time we get to the end, we'll find a new way that the joy of the Lord will be our strength. The joy of the Lord will encourage each one of us. Some of you are doing great. Uh, some of you are doing awesome. My mom, I don't remember a time even see ever seeing my mom discouraged. And I know some of the horrible things that she's had to go through in her life, but she's just an optimist. Um, even if you're one of those people, the joy of the Lord can take you to a new place. And so I just want to encourage you. Let's dig in on that. Let's dig in on this idea of the joy of the Lord. If it's, if it's out there, if it's attainable, I want it. I don't know about you. I'd like to get there. Uh, So I want to, I'm going to read from John chapter six. Uh, If you're following along, here's what I want to do. I'm putting on my glasses so you know I'm getting serious. It's kind of a lengthy passage this week. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the whole, the whole section. Uh, Most people, if you were doing a Bible study on this section, you would probably take like four to six weeks. We're going to, I'm going to read the whole thing and then we're going to kind of fly over the top of it, you know, not like, uh, not 30,000 feet, not on the ground, but but just kind of right above the trees, so we can get a, a good sense of what's, of what's happening. So uh, it's kind of funny. The reason it's so lengthy and the reason I want to read the whole thing is it's kind of confusing because Jesus is talking to the people and he's kind of saying the same thing over and over again, but they're not really getting it. Uh, you know, totally different than us, right? Like God says something once and we're there. Uh, but these people, I don't know what's wrong with them. He has to say the same thing over and over again. Uh, so let's see, where, should, uh, where do we want to pick this up at? Uh, I'm going to go for, uh, let's go for John 6, verse 25. We'll pick it up right there. Now, just remember what's happened. The people saw Jesus do a bunch of miracles in and around Jerusalem. Uh, They were super excited about it. So when he crossed over the sea, uh, the Sea of Galilee, they all followed him. There's thousands of people there uh, and not very much food. What does Jesus do? Miraculously, he multiplies the bread and the fish and feeds them. Miracle bread from heaven. It's, It's incredible. The people are so pumped up that the next day they realize Jesus and his disciples have left, gone back across the lake, six, seven miles, big lake, to Capernaum. They follow him there. And so this is, they find him here at the beginning of this passage. Verse 25 says, when they found Jesus on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Now, the fact that they call him Rabbi, I know it's going to take forever at this pace, is kind of important because we know Jesus has 12 disciples but at this point, you basically have three groups of people following Jesus. You have the masses, right? people who just think the miracles are awesome, they like the free food, they're following them to see what happens. And you have the 12 disciples, the ones we know. Uh, but you also have this middle group. Uh, these are the people who are going to call him rabbi. They also would be considered disciples. Uh, there's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of like 100 to 200 of them at this point. Uh, They have kind of formally started following Jesus, if you will. They're trying to adhere to his teachings and learn from him, not just see what cool thing he'll do. So these are the people calling him rabbi. When did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs like way back in Jerusalem, but because you ate your fill. You ate loaves and had your fill. Now you want free stuff from me. And then he says this really strange thing to them. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On Him, God the Father has placed His seal of approval. Then they asked Him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in me, the one He has sent. So then they asked Him, well, what miraculous sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers, our ancestors, they ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he, God, or Moses, gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world, me, Jesus. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Eternal bread. Who doesn't want that? Never be hungry again. Then Jesus answered, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me will, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of God who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I shall lose none of all the ones he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Okay, I'll call the a quick timeout. What's God's will? That everyone who believes in Jesus would have eternal life. If you're wondering, what's God's will? What's God about? What's he doing in the world? That's his will, that everyone who believes in Christ would have eternal life. And at this, the Jews began to grumble because that's what curmudgeons do. It's what religious people do. If you, uh, if you, so you have this group of religious leaders. Uh, they're, they're a bunch of old guys. I'm sorry if you consider yourself an old guy. I'm not picking on you. That's just who they are. I'm well on my way. I'm a budding curmudgeon, I have a feeling. Um, I used to work at a golf shop, golf store, okay? It's where old guys hang out. And uh, every conversation in the golf shop consists of two key elements uh, one, it's old guys talking about how awesome they used to be, and two, how big of an idiot everyone else is. Like, those are basically the two key elements of every conversation. And it kind of sounds like with this particular group, it's sort of the same. Truth be told, you don't have to be an old guy to get there, right? We can easily get there in our heart. So that's what's happening. They start grumbling because Jesus said, verse 41, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say I came down from heaven? Valid point. Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the father who has sent me draws him, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the father and learns from the one who comes to me and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth. He who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, and yet they died. But here is the bread that come down, comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread came down, which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh which I will give for the life of the world. And then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? This is where it gets weird. (laughs) Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood in me remains in me and I in him. They eat my flesh and drink my blood part just sounds weird. And I think it's kind of funny to John that he says it like five times in a row. So you just have to keep like repeating it. Uh, But we'll get to that. We'll, We'll talk about it. Just as the living father sent me and I live because of the father, so also the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your fathers ate the manna in the desert, and they still died. But he who feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. Now is the response to what he just said. Verse 60 says, On hearing it, many of his disciples said to themselves, This is a hard teaching. Amen to that. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? What if you see me ascend to where I was before? The spirit gives, gives life, and the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come. To me, unless the Father has enabled him. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Whew. That was a marathon, right? That was, that was pretty, uh, that was lengthy. Okay, so so last week Jesus fed the multitudes. They were all so impressed. And what do they want to do? They want to make him their king. They want him to uh, rise up, make them a prosperous nation, make Israel great again. They want him to overthrow the Romans and lead the revolution. That's what they want to have happen. Well, Jesus isn't having it. He withdraws and he leaves back across the sea. Well, they just follow him. They still want to make him their leader. So he comes up with an even better solution to that problem. He comes up with the world's worst campaign campaign slogan, eat my flesh. If that doesn't make you wanna follow him, I don't know what will. So at the end of the story, of course, everybody's like, okay, this is kinda weird. Um, I was remembering a situation when I, uh, when I read this earlier. Does anybody remember Howard Dean? The moment that single-handedly ended Howard Dean's presidential run? A couple of you are like, oh yeah, I remember that. Google it sometime, you will, uh, you'll, you'll enjoy what you see. But Jesus doesn't want to be their political leader. He uh, he gets rid of them. So this passage is super complex. It's long. It's really deep. There's a lot of historical context, a bunch of of different stuff to consider. Uh, But I just want to get to a couple of big concepts. So consider this. Uh, I'm a late Gen Xer. Gen Xers are born 1964 to 1979. Uh, I was born in the year of our Lord, 1977. So I just barely made the cut. Uh, I'm a late Gen Xer and uh, Millennials born 1980 to 1994. Uh, So we got a lot of those, a lot of those in those church. Uh, A lot of late-gen Xers, a lot of Millennials here. Late-gen Xers like me and early Millennials. So we'll say like 75 to 85. We actually kind of need our own generation uh, because we have this unique dynamic. We were born into an analog world. Like everything electronic had a cord attached to it, right? People still read the newspaper. You could watch a news broadcast, but. They got their information probably through the newspaper, and it was yesterday's news, and everything just traveled slow. Information traveled so much slower. The internet didn't exist. We were born into that world, but we came of age in the digital world. Uh, My kids, they've never lived in a world without cell phones. Uh, I was born without those, but I came of age in them. I know you guys are thinking, what a cord? Never even heard of that. I don't know what you're talking about. so we came of age in this digital world where information travels super fast. Now if you're in one of those categories, if you're a late gen Xer or younger, so if you're in your uh, maybe early 40s or younger, there's a principle here that really applies. You might even be older than that, but if you consider yourself technologically savvy, uh, this'll, this'll totally make sense to you. So let me make this example. I brought along a picture of my friend Megan and her family. Uh, this is Megan and her husband, Zach, and their, their daughter, they live over in Seattle. Uh, Megan is from Everett, Washington. She went to high school there. She was a cheerleader at her high school. And then when she got married to Zach, he is, was and is in the military, they moved to Guam. And she loved it. Has anybody ever been to Guam? Uh, the only person I know I think that's that spent significant time there is, uh, is Megan. And she just raves about how beautiful it is. She has all these pictures of just amazing beaches. He just spent all day every day hanging out on the beach and, Uh, She also loved the food scene. She loved to go to all these kind of trendy local places and eat food that you don't get a lot here in the States. She just loved it. Her personal interests, uh, she's an advocate for animals, and she's really passionate about helping veterans find housing. These are are the things that she loves to do. So uh, when she's not doing all that, her and Zach travel the world. They they love to go to tropical places. and uh, So this is what they do, right? She has a really exciting life. Uh, I'm going to assume that no one here knows Megan. I'm going to go out on a limb and assume, unless there's just the mother of all you know, coincidences happening, that no one here knows Megan. The truth is, I've never met Megan either. I spent 90, 90 seconds or so on uh, her social media profile, and that's what I learned about Megan. I don't know anything about her. All I know about her is what she wants an outsider to know through the lens that she wants an outsider to look through. Uh, I literally just arbitrarily searched the name Megan, literally, it was like the first name that came to my mind when I just wanted to think of an arbitrary name. I I don't know her at all. In the digital world like this, the social media world, uh, we experience what sociologists and psychologists sometimes refer to as a hyper-reality. It's a simulation of a reality. You might even call it like an imaginary ideal. Effectively what her profile is saying is this isn't my real life but this is what I want my real life to look like and this is what I want you to think it looks like. This is sort of become kind of our normal. Is everything in Guam beautiful? Probably not. I've never been there but uh, I'm guessing not everything is beautiful. Does she eat every single meal at a trendy local restaurant? Probably not. You know, there's there's all kinds of things that probably aren't true. Uh, Megan, I found out, actually is an actress. Uh, she's been in these really amazing commercials, or at least you would think by looking at the profile. I've never seen any of them, so it kind of begs the question, like how amazing are they? Uh, <laughs> but this is all I know. I just know what she wants me to know, this hyper real version. So I brought this clip of a commercial. It's not an exciting commercial. It's a very normal commercial. Uh, I just saw it on TV a couple of weeks ago. It's like 15 seconds long. I want to show you this commercial because it's a good example of just how far away from reality we can actually get and still consider it our normal. So go go ahead and play that. Imagine experiencing this level of wow, this heightened state of car buying bliss. These feelings are not uncommon at the Honda Summer Spectacular event, where you can get a great deal on the Honda Pilot with seating for up to eight. This euphoria is only available at the Honda Summer Spectacular event. So come experience it for yourself. We see it all the time. Visit your local Honda dealer and test drive the Honda Pilot, named part of 2018's best SUV lineup in America. I have bought a car before, uh, a couple times actually in my adult life. Is any of that consistent with your experience of car shopping? Uh, I've actually been to a Honda dealer and there were no bubbles coming from the ceiling. <laughs> Shocking, I know. Uh, but it turns out that's actually the only place that you can experience that kind of euphoria. Uh, what a great example of just how far away from true reality we can get and not really think anything of it. I probably saw that commercial 20 times without really thinking anything of it. This is a hyperreality. I actually brought a definition just so we can sort of get to the same place here. An inability of the consciousness to distinguish reality from a simulation of reality, especially in technologically advanced postmodern societies. Uh, it is creating... An imaginary, ideal version of life. It's blurring of the line between what's real and our ideal. So this is what we have this group of people following Jesus and experience. What are they doing to Jesus? Uh, they like the miracles. They want him to do stuff for them. But he wants to talk about their eternal reality. He doesn't want to talk about these temporary Things, these immediate needs, uh, he cares about those, but he wants to actually lead them to something better, something that will last forever. The problem is, they've taken their imaginary ideal of what they think will make them happy, and they're actually just looking through that lens. They don't, they don't want to talk about the other stuff. At the end, they end up walking walking away. Uh, I regret to tell you that I do this too. Uh, probably all of us do it. It might look something different. It might look like accepting the things from the Bible that I like, rejecting the things that I don't, or finding a, figuring out a reason why that doesn't apply to me today. Uh, it might look like chasing down a spiritual experience instead of pursuing the things that God has already declared to be his will, things I already know. They do it. We do it today. It's no condemnation. It's just a point of reality. So Jesus is at the, uh, at the synagogue, and this is kind of the high-level high conversation, People followed him back across the sea because he gave them bread. They were so excited. He miraculously fed bread from heaven to the multitudes. And then they follow him to Capernaum, and he wants to tell them something different. And this is what he says. Uh, He says, you followed me here because of the bread. I get that. You need bread. You got to have it to live. But don't orient your life around the pursuit of temporary things. He calls it food that spoils. Rather, he says, orient your life around food that leads to eternal life. Uh, I think we could all say, that makes sense. We should orient our life around eternal things, not temporary things, not be short-sighted. He says, orient your life around these eternal things, this eternal food, which I will give you. Okay, well their response is, all good. We like eternity, we wanna be with God. That's all good. What does God want us to do? That's their question. What, what should we do? And Jesus says the most simple thing. He says, the will of God is for you to believe in me. Now, there's a lot to that, right? Putting your faith in him. If, you, if your faith is in Jesus, that's going to have implications for everything else in your life, of course. But he just starts at ground zero. He just says, the will of God is for you to believe in me, to orient your life around me. And their response is, this is where it starts to get silly and they start to have this, you know, they, they just start running around the carousel here. Their response is, well, show us a sign so that we know you're, you're the real deal, that you're really from heaven. And then they cite an example. Now, you might remember Moses. This particular incident was in Exodus 16. They say, back in the desert, Moses gave us bread from heaven so that we would know God is really with us and that Moses is really our leader that God wants us to follow. Do something like that. It's funny, it occurred to me this week that they're actually playing like the original game of trick-or-treat, right? Like they, they want Jesus to either do something cool or give us bread. I thought it was sort of funny. Maybe that's where the tradition came from. Uh, apparently, Jessica, you're the only person who was amused by that as well, but thank you. Uh, so they want Jesus to do something, do something cool for us now. If I'm Jesus, if you're Jesus, they're saying, why don't you do something cool like give us bread from heaven? I'm probably thinking to myself, remember yesterday, like the day before this day when we were on the other side of the lake and there wasn't enough bread and I gave you all miraculous bread from heaven? Does anyone in this crowd remember that? Anyone? Apparently no one does. Maybe he did say that, but John didn't write it down. Uh, I'm guessing not because he's more (laughs) gracious than I am. What he does say is, Back when Moses gave you bread from heaven, was it Moses who gave it to you? Was it bread from Moses' house, Moses' tent, as it were? No, it was bread from heaven. So so if it came from heaven, it came from the one who's in heaven. His point is, it was actually God who gave your ancestors the bread, not Moses. And so the people respond, okay, yeah, that that totally makes sense. But seriously, what are you going to do for us? What kind of sign are you going to do? And it's a really long, circular conversation, but I just want to drill in on one paragraph that I think is sort of high level and covers it all. Verse 35, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Now, let me ask you this question. Is Jesus talking about real bread that you can actually ingest right here? Is that what he's talking about? I'm going to ask my wife, Brandy, to come on up here. Um, I just want you to know she's already started hating this. Uh, and you got your phone handy? You have a Bible app on your phone? Why don't you look up Romans 14, verse 17, and I'm just going to ask you to, uh, to read that. Hey, okay? Jesus says, whoever eats this bread will never be hungry. Whoever drinks this drink will never be thirsty. Is he talking about actual food that you can ingest? My guess is that the people there think he is Uh, Romans 14. Yep, almost there. Thanks for helping me out. Verse 17. Almost, there we go. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Hey, great job. The kingdom of Yes, give, give her a hand. That was great. I knew you could overcome your fear there. Um, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but it's a matter of righteousness, of peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Is Jesus talking about them eating and drinking? No. He's not trying to give them food. What is he trying to give them? He's trying to give them righteousness, peace, joy. The presence of the Holy Spirit in their life. That's what, he's, that's what he's trying to give them, and they're just not understanding it. And that's why he says the next verse. But as I've already told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. You've seen with your eyes, but you still don't believe. Which begs a pretty obvious question. Would seeing God do a physical, tangible, undeniable miracle right in front of your eyes be enough to make you believe and understand and follow unquestionably forever. Would it, would it be enough? Like if I just saw God do something undeniable right in front of my eyes, I would, I would be 100% in. Would it be enough? I think probably not. Based on this particular uh, passage, actually the entire biblical narrative supports that argument. And the reason, I think, is because it's never been from the very beginning about seeing. It's always been about faith. God doesn't ever say uh, Moses saw the miracle and it was credited to him as righteousness. He says, not Moses, Abraham. He says Abraham believed God and that was credited to him as righteousness. It's always been about faith. It is inescapable that we have to put our faith in God in order to have a relationship with him. That That is what he desires. And that fact makes the people in the conversation a little bit uncomfortable. The next verse, Jesus says, all those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. There's kind of an uncomfortable inference right here. Um, What Jesus is saying is that some are going to come to me, and I'll never reject them. But the inference or the implication on the other side is obviously that some are not going to. Some are not going to come to me. Some are not going to be accepted. And this is an uncomfortable reality. It's a, it's a difficult statement to digest. And sometimes people will ask a question that I think is very understandable. They'll say something like, so are you saying that like, if I don't believe the right thing, then God will you know, reject me or condemn me or send me to hell or whatever? Uh, I think that's a viable question. I can understand why someone would, would ask that question. And I think my response would be something along the lines of, it's really not for me to say who God's going to reject. I don't make that decision. That's a little ways above my pay grade. However, I do know that that doesn't have to be the case because Jesus has made it abundantly clear that God's will for us is to believe that he is the Messiah, that he is the Savior. Verse 39 He goes on to say, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given to me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. So, what's Jesus' ultimate agenda? God bless you. His ultimate agenda is our reconciliation, for us to know God, to save the lost. For us to, us to have eternal life, that's foundational. Uh, among the other blessings that we receive, that's the bottom line. For us to be able to participate in the kingdom of God. For us to be free from the rat race of trying to build a temporary hyper reality, like what they're doing in this case, to stop chasing happiness where it can't be found. Jesus is trying to lead them to something better, but they're not having it. And they get upset. You ever want something so bad you just feel like I have to have it in order to move on, in order to be happy, in order to be successful? Well, these people want their sign. Uh, we want things all the time. We want to live at a certain financial level, level or I'll just be, consider myself a failure or attain this career or that level of education or I'm a failure or uh, something like, uh, I don't know, for us to... Be really organized. If my life gets too chaotic, then I just, I can't control it. Then it's just a mess, all right? We want things all the time. That happens to all of us. And these people want their sign. They're very adamant about it. So Jesus is saying to them, essentially, I'm actually offering you something better. You, you don't understand. I'm trying to offer you something better. And he supports his case by saying, your ancestors who ate that bread from heaven, that was really great and it met their immediate need because you have to have food to live, but they still died. Eventually they, they died. It met a temporary need. I'm offering you eternal food. I'm offering you eternal life. And I think one of the implications we can draw from that is fairly obvious that Jesus wants to add to your life, not take away. Sometimes there might be something in your life that he knows is harming you, and God might have to say no. Uh, I have a good friend named Jason. Uh, some people refer to him as the sex guy. Because he is an expert on sexual integrity. He runs uh, an organization called Project 619, and uh, he deals with the implications of various sexual behaviors in our lives, uh, has an amazing ministry. And one of the things he says that just, so sticky, just stuck in my brain, he says, God's no always leads to a better yes. Jesus is one trying to add to your life. I hope you can embrace that. Even if it means at times he's saying no, he's trying to add to you not take away from you. We kind of do what they do pretty often. You know, they, they get the physical bread, they get their immediate need met, and they love it. And uh, they love it so much that they're actually taking day-long journeys, either on foot or in a rowboat, to go see Jesus do something else. You know they were impressed, because it would take something amazing to make me row a boat seven miles to go see it happen. Uh, but they are just, they're loving it. And then Jesus says, hey, Let's talk about your eternal life. And they're like, "Yeah, just give us more bread. Just, just do something cool, Jesus. We don't, we don't need that. Uh, man, can we just admit, like, sometimes we do this to God. It's no condemnation. It's just a point of fact. Sometimes I say, God, I really need your help with this problem. Oh, we're good? Okay, thanks. God bless me financially, but don't tell me how to spend it. Right, we, we do that kind of stuff. Maybe you don't. Maybe, maybe it's just me and I'm just airing all of that. Uh, but I, I, think that, I think that happens all the time. But remember, Jesus is trying to lead you somewhere better. And he's about to sort of wrap up this conversation with all of them, uh, more like terminate this conversation. In verse 53, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. But whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Now, we have context because we can read all of Jesus' life story. They could not. Can you imagine how freaked out you would be when he says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Uh, I'm out. Okay, I'm leaving right then. And that's pretty much what all of them end up doing. That is just a very strange thing to say. So what did he mean by that? What what does that mean when he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood? Well, he's talking about two things. One, he's talking about his crucifixion, where he would take in his body God's wrath against our sin. This is my body, which is broken for you. He's talking about eternal things. Secondarily, he's talking about his blood, which establishes a new covenant by which God would pass over our guilt. Uh, You remember the original Passover back in Egypt? Where God said to his people, He said, I want you to put the blood of a lamb over the door. And his wrath would pass over the homes that, that had done that, that had been obedient. Really, faith and obedience was the bottom line right there. Well, this is, this is the new covenant. When he's talking about my blood, this is what he's talking about. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it's really, really clarified for us. Uh, Jesus is. Uh, The night before he was crucified, he's having one last meal with his disciples, and he takes the bread. Verse 24 says, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this bread is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In other words, eat this bread in remembrance of me. This, This makes more sense. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Makes more sense now. He's talking about his body and his blood. I'm going to ask Jessica to come up because we, uh, we just have just a few minutes left together. Um, but I, uh, I want to take a moment and just observe communion together. Hopefully there was a little cup on your seat when you came in. When Jesus said, eat my flesh and drink my blood, he was talking about his body He was talking about the wrath of God being poured out on him at the cross, physically in his body, and not wrath against his sin, but wrath against your sin and my sin. What a gracious act. And his request was that whenever we would participate in communion, whenever we would eat the bread, that we would do it in remembrance of him. So if you peel back the top layer, the bread will come out and there's a, there's a second layer for the juice. What will they think of next, right? And then he said, the same principle applies to the blood. My blood of the new covenant by which God will pass over your guilt and welcome you into his family. So if you'd like to participate, I just, I want to invite you. If you don't, that's perfectly okay. But I'm just going to pray over these. He had to... Uh, and then we'll, we'll take them together and, and uh, we'll, we'll wrap up our time. Lord, I thank you for your, your body. God, that you, you willingly went to the cross. And even though you had no sin of your own, you paid the penalty for my sin. You absorbed the punishment for my sin, for our sin. So God, I just, I thank you for that right now, for your body that was broken for me. And I remember that moment. Lord, I thank you for your blood, which has established a new and eternal covenant, God, that I am welcomed into God's family, and it is written permanently in your blood. So Lord, we thank you now for the sacrifice that you have made on our behalf. In your name, amen. Well, everything we've said up until this point is all pretty important. It's pretty high-level stuff, Uh, although you really have to get down into the weeds to unpack it. Um, but I just want to appreciate before we go The very last thing that's, that is said And this will really be our, our takeaway Everybody leaves at the, at the eat my flesh, drink my blood Everybody leaves Makes sense, I probably would too Everybody leaves except the twelve The original disciples And Jesus turns to them and he says Hey, you know, if you guys want to go too, that's fine Totally get that And Peter responds with the mother of all rhetorical questions. Jesus says, do you guys want to go too? And Peter says, where else would we go? You're the Messiah. You're the Savior of the world. Where else would we go? Verse 68, Peter responds, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to know and to believe that you are the Holy One of God. Where else would we go? If you are who you say you are, what else would we turn to? Yes, it's a hard teaching, but what other direction would I go? What else would make sense? If you've read Peter's story, you know he can be impulsive, uh, but all of the, out of all the thousands of people that are following Jesus right now, he's actually the one who's putting together a coherent train of thought. Where else would I go? He's moved past this imaginary ideal and he realizes Jesus is trying to add to him. He's trying to give him eternal life. Peter's the one who gets it. Makes sense now why Jesus made this impulsive guy, the the rock he would build his church upon. What if we got everything we ever wanted? Would Would it really change our ultimate reality, our ultimate destiny? The great news that we see in Jesus' story is that he's vested in both your physical, immediate life. Remember, he did the miracles. He met the physical need. But he also wants to add something better. He also wants to add eternal life. He's prioritizing that. So I think we all get that. That makes sense in terms of eternity. But why does it matter right now? Why does it matter for today? What's what's so important about it in my life right now? It's because of this. The quality of your outer life will flow from the quality of your inner life. Kids are rocking out down there. It's all good. Love those guys. The quality of your outer life will flow from the quality of your inner life. And here's my example. You ever met somebody that's just, they're just a happy person? Life goes like this, up and down, but they're just happy. They're happy all the time. Regardless of the circumstance, yeah, difficult things are gonna come into life, but they don't just automatically give their joy away because something bad happened. You ever meet those people? Uh, You meet those people who are just optimistic, just in general. Something, things go great, they're like, yes, this is awesome. Things go poorly, they're like, well, it's going to get better. There was a guy that I used to spend some time with in Yakima. He went to our church there, and uh, he was kind of in his mid-50s, and the company he worked for for years went out of business. It's a tough time in life to be starting over, and I would ask him, Jim, how are things going? And he would always say the same thing, not as good as it's going to be. Not as good as it's going to be because he was just convinced it was going to look up. It was going to get better. Whiny people, always whiny. Optimistic people, always optimistic. And it's because the quality of your outer life isn't dependent on your circumstance. It's dependent on the quality of your inner life. It's more dependent on your inner life than it is just on your circumstance. And it's the same thing I always say. Knowing Jesus matters because Jesus will do new and better things in you, and through you, so I want to encourage you to do what he's what he's saying right here. Uh, we all gotta work. We all gotta pursue things. I mean, we all want to eat food and live indoors. Things of life are gonna happen, but don't orient your life around the temporary things. Orient your life around eternal food that doesn't spoil. That's where he's trying to lead us. Let me pray for you. God, thank you so much that your intent is to add to our life to do new and better things in our life, not to take away. gather. when you're, you're leading us away from temporary things and toward eternal things, you're, you're actually taking us somewhere better. So Lord, we, we acknowledge that in our thought process, I pray you'd help it to get down into our heart. I pray you'd help us to uh, be the kind of people who truly believe that, because as you said in, in Proverbs 23, 7, as a person believes in their heart, so they are. That what's in our heart is the real us. Lord, would you come and root yourself in our heart? God, I pray you do that in each of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.